Welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in. It's me, the Alabama stud, David Summers, hosting another studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. And this is the only podcast on the planet which is documenting the real story of professional wrestling. Ron Fuller is or has been an entrepreneur, a businessman, a hockey team owner. As a championship wrestler, he's held every major title in every organization he's ever worked for. He's been a promoter and a wrestling company owner. He has wrestled Luthez, Jack Briscoe, Harley Race, Terry Funk, Ric Flair, and many other superstar names. He is known for his legendary relationship with Andre the Giant. You did not want to be in Waffle House with these two back in the day. He is also an author. A review of his book, his new book, Brutus, compared it to Jaws, and it's available on his website at tnstud.com or on Amazon. With well over 20 family members in the business and a family that was in the wrestling business over 100 years ago, get ready to hear another story of wrestling history as told by the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Now please welcome the originator of the Studcast and the man who changed the podcasting world with the Super Studcast. We step back into time and back into the ring with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. What's up, my man, Ron? I'm dog. I like that, man. What an introduction, Dave. I'm going to send you, I'm gonna send you an Alabama stud, that man. I like that Alabama stud thing, too, man. Five no. feet, nine inches tall, 295 <laughs> pat. No, I'm, I'm not that heavy. I am a little pudgy, though. Oh, jeez, man. <laughs> great, great to have you on here today, man. And, uh. You know, I look forward to this one, and uh, yeah, that's a great introduction, man. I don't think you left out anything, man. <laughs> so, well, that was that was kind of the intention behind that. You, listen, your your life has truly been a story, and I'm wondering if you know, you know you've got this novel out now. At any point, would you ever put out a book about your life, or is that what we're doing with this studcast and have been doing for how many episodes? 160 or so by now. Yeah, I think this is number 160 here, as a matter of fact. And then that's kind of what we've been doing. Yeah, I plan on doing the book. Obviously, if I'm going to write a book about a lion, I ought to write one about myself. So, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so right. I, I, I'm, I'm going to get to it here someday. But uh, gosh, we're so long. We're so far away from the end of this story, man. My life yeah. story uh, that uh, it's ridiculous, you know. These studcasts may last 900 episodes before I, <laughs> if I wanted to do hockey and if I wanted to do ADT and if I wanted to do the book, uh, you know, talk about the book, uh, I wouldn't doubt it'd probably go 900 episodes. But uh, we're here today for this one, for sure. And uh, this is going to be a good one. I really, I think we're going to touch on some great topics here today. And uh, hopefully we're, we're not going to run out of time. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot in it. You know, so thanks for joining me today. Also, uh, you, Lou, out there in San Francisco who are recording it. Thank you for being with me today. And if you guys are ready, man, uh, we'll get to rolling. Well, let's get it cinched up. I know you got lightning ready to go. So I've got Fluff Bunny. She's ready to go, too. So where are we headed to today? Well, today's training, it's going to be uh, we're going to start out with that again. Uh, and uh, we're going to make bookers out of us again today. We spent the last two episodes. Uh, so much was happening in late 1976. It was really hard for me to keep up with the runaway territory. That's what it felt like. I mean, business was just cranked, and I never knew what to expect. 
So we're going to take a deep dive into bookers and, uh, and how and why they used every possibility to understand their audience and uh, to do the best that they could to bring success to their owners and to their crews, which they were so indebted to, man, <laughs> their crews especially. And we will then obviously reveal the card for August the 20th, 1976. It's the week following that record crowd that we ran photos of last week. I've had so many people talk about that photo. Pretty amazing shot. Uh, so this week, we're going to be talking about that August 20th, 1976 card. And we're also going to look at the TV that promotes that card and the results of the card and the attendance. And uh, the learning tree question for today are what were the dangers in traveling in the territory days? Were car accidents a wrestler's greatest danger? And name some loss to the sport. Mm. So uh, interesting question there, too. Oh, no doubt about it. Sounds like another great one, Ryan. Let's get right on in it. All right. Last two, as I said earlier, today's training, Dave, uh, I hadn't had us wearing that owner's hat. And it had us dealing with the city of Knoxville's Chihai Park Management. And we're also dealing with the Knoxville Coliseum Management uh, to find out which venue was going to become the future home of Southeastern Wrestling Incorporated. It's the company I established there in fall of 1974. Uh, this time, we're going to be putting on that Booker's hat again as we go inside a Booker's mind, you know, uh, and that uh, that's what I'm trying to do with these today's training segments is to take people inside a Booker's mind or a wrestler's mind. And we're going to get a feel for what that part of the wrestling business is all about being a Booker. Uh, wrestling was a very unique and complicated business back in the 1970s before that as well. And, you know, it's changed so dramatically, but back in the day, it, it was a great business to be a part of. And it was especially unique and complicated if you were trying to wear all the hats like I decided to do. <laughs> you know, and you kind of covered them, I believe, on the intro there. You know, uh, <laughs> so it was one of the most positions and, you know, important positions in the sport was being a booker. And uh, this ride in today's training, it should be very interesting. Every booker, you know, had to, had to regularly choose. To, to take a close look at every part of his job. Hiring and firing wrestlers is a good place to start when you're talking about bookers. Bookers had to recognize which wrestlers were making it happen in the territories. Bookers that changed talent often needed to stay on top of this because they were constantly having to assess everything. <laughs> you know, they, well, you've got your talent and all of a sudden you're changing the guy and how do you get the next guy? Who's getting over? Who's not getting over? You know, he had to look at all those things, like who was getting over and uh, and who was drawing him money and who was just along for the ride, not contributing to building the company or not contributing to the size of the crowds. So these two simple questions told them who they were going to push and who was going to be consistently on an early match. <laughs> Some guys that are just never destined to be on top. If they didn't watch all the matches closely or use all of their what I call crowd connections, they were destined to miss an opportunity with a wrestler somewhere in their crew that could have made them money and made their owners a lot more money. So let's start today with me as a booker. Uh, I put on my hat the importance of what a guy called the crowd connection was. And uh, by that, I mean someone in your company that wasn't a wrestler necessarily but that interacted with the crowd in every city and heard from them personally what they liked about the crew and the angles and what's going on and what they didn't like. So he then delivered that information to the booker. Now, this guy that I call the crowd connection, and I don't know that any other booker ever called anybody this, but for me, it was an important thing for me. This guy called the crowd connection. He never asked the fans that question specifically. Or he wouldn't have got the real answer, probably. He just became friends with a great number of fans. Uh, they became comfortable enough with him to talk to him about what was going on in the territory. They told him who they liked and didn't like and why. But uh, they didn't know they were uh, passing that information on, but they were doing it when they were telling him. They also told him what angle or combination opponents that the booker had paired together that they really got into. And they told him the ones that they didn't, obviously. So my crowd connection delivered all the appropriate information to me. Oddly enough, as a booker, you know, if you were really into what the crowd was eating up, you're going to maybe get even an angle or an idea 
from the crowd mm. and from somebody who sits out there and watches it every week. Right. So who was this crowd connection? The, the Booker's eyes and ears is what he was for me. It, it could have been just a friend who maybe travels with the Booker on trips and drives the car, or maybe he wasn't even a wrestler. Maybe he was just an old worker who was smart to what was going on and uh, who a guy who makes friends easily in every different city uh, by joining the fans in the crowd sometimes and closely watching and listening to the comments of fans around him. For me in southeastern Knoxville, my crowd connection was my referee, Mac. He had a great personality. He had hundreds of friends. And he was the type of guy people felt comfortable to confide in and tell him not only how they felt about what was happening in the ring each night, but often they talked to him about their own problems. <laughs> you know, <laughs> And he let me know that, too. <laughs> so, the fact Matt was not only the referee, but he was the man responsible for setting up the ring and the ringside chairs and spot shows. Man, he got to communicate with people all over the territory, not just in Knoxville. So uh, his Knoxville friends, that had been fans for years even, were so close to him that they would follow his ring truck and follow him 100 miles down the road to help him put up the ring and the chairs and stuff. <laughs> so, you know, he had people that were literally uh, supporting him, helping him every night. And uh, he had tremendous friends. So Mac also made new friends in all these spot show cities. And eventually, when he started arriving in these spot shows, they would show up to help him set up the ring and the chairs. So these fans were all a great gauge for me as a booker in determining what was going on and uh, what they wanted to see in those cities. You know, I got a different perspective because the spot show people only got to see these shows maybe once every two months, where the Knoxville people got to see these shows every week. So, you know, I got a totally different perspective sometimes from fans coming out of these small towns that we hardly ever went to than I did from the weekly customers. So, but I was getting a totally different perspective uh, from the two of them most of the time. Mac was getting a great sample of thoughts of fans uh, around the territory, and he was relaying those thoughts to me. And what I was, in essence, getting was actually the fans' real point of view. Uh, it's an unbelievable thing for a booker to be able to lay his hands on that. It was critical information that every booker, in my opinion, needed to add to their own ideas. And if a booker thought an angle or something special was going to get over and had planned to ride that angle long term, he needed good feedback sooner rather than later. So if it wasn't working, you know, he could cut it off early. If he heard, you know, a lot of people saying, hey, I don't like this angle. I don't like this deal. I don't like that guy, whatever it is. It can keep him from wanting to ride something that's not good. So, you know, if it wasn't working, he could cut it off early. It keeps the territory's momentum moving forward rather than continuing to ride that dead horse that some of these angles might be. So many bookers made that mistake. Uh, they got so sold on their own angle that they couldn't, or worse, wouldn't see that it wasn't working. They refused to see that it wasn't working, and they would continue with it and drive business down rather than having it get better. So bad bookers would continue with an angle that had no future, because it was their idea. <laughs> they had the, too much pride to say, oh, that's a bad idea, you know? <laughs> so then so, that's bad. I mean, you didn't want to let that happen to you. So I always thought if it wasn't working, I should let it go and try something else. So success was always simply spelled as sellouts wow. for me. Yeah. You know, that was the bottom line. Anything short of that, and you weren't doing your best job if you were a booker. Bookers needed to make the proper decisions always, not just for themselves, but even more so for the owner and the boys working in the territory. A booker's first opportunity was to the owner and to the guys in the ring that were busting their ass to make his ideas work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, they were bleeding and, and sweating and bleeding, uh, you know, based upon his ideas and you know, he needed to give them the best ideas he possibly could. So there's one last place that every booker had an opportunity to access ideas. Some bookers didn't want ideas from these people, but I always welcomed it. And I'm talking about, oddly enough, the wrestlers themselves. 
I always encourage every wrestler in my crew uh, by saying, don't just get involved in your match every night, guys, but ride home thinking and talking about what you'd do if you were the book. You know, I found that if you get wrestlers involved in more than just the match, they become even better wrestlers in the ring. Pretty amazing, but it's the way the business worked. And I like to fire up young guys, especially, and get them to try to think like a booker. And what happens is they become great workers quickly. So too many territories missed the big picture. Where were the new bookers, you know? Where were the new bookers and the new ideas going to come from if they don't come from the present-day wrestlers? Where are you going to get them at, the, and at some point? So the, I always thought the future of the sport was in the hands of the young wrestlers. Uh, a perfect example of getting ideas from wrestlers and coming up. Uh, you know, one of the best angles ever worked in my companies, Southeastern, Knoxville, Southeastern Pensacola, Continental, or USA, uh, came from two great old-timers. Maybe the best angle, uh, one of the two best angles for sure that was ever worked in my wrestling companies. And uh, came from two old-timers, two guys that were going to take Southeastern Knoxville in 1977 to the next level. They came to me with an unbelievable angle that had never been done and would never be done again. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> and we'll discuss that. So if not only, it not only exploded business, but maybe even more important, it brought great credibility to wrestling everywhere that it was ever shown. It was a horrifying angle and nobody could have watched it and not been affected by it like wow geez how did they do that <laughs> right so you know now i hate to do this to you again Dave, but uh, you know there's a lot in this show and i'm gonna set this angle the rest of it aside <laughs> and it'll be next week's today's training subject uh it's jola duke and the mongolian stomper that suggested uh, doing this something this far out and dangerous that I actually turned them down when they brought the idea to me. They wanted to bust huge concrete blocks on their heads with a sledgehammer oh, on television. Wow. wow. <laughs> and, and I don't know what you're thinking, Dave. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're going to get real crazy in next week's Today's Trading because we're well, going to feature this angle. I'm certainly not surprised you're doing this to us again, but I, I want to go back just for a second because Mac really was the guy who kind of had his finger on the pulse of your listeners or your audience. Now I relate that because of uh, broadcasting, but for research, Mac was the guy who had his finger on the pulse of the folks who were watching the matches and then giving your wrestlers ownership in what they were doing is the best way to improve morale. So you made them feel like they were a part of what was happening and they had a say in their future. So obviously the businessman side of you, was really shining at that point. Well, that's a that's looking at it in a great way, and that's basically what it was. I mean, you take these young guys that that wanted to go somewhere, uh, those guys that really had desire, they wanted to do whatever it was to make them better. And when you could inspire them and say, "Guys, come to me with ideas. Uh, tell me if you've got something," and they come, and sometimes they have a good idea, and you use it. Wow. You see the growth in those guys. Arn Anderson comes to me instantly. Arn was uh, one of those guys. Ron, I want to I wanna try to be a booker. I want to see things from all aspects. And, uh, and he used to come with ideas. And sometimes I would use them. Sometimes I didn't think they were that good, and I would use them, and I would, uh, and I would be surprised with what happened. But it, it was a great concept. You're in a position when you own a company that your employees can just work for you or they can be a part of your company. Right. And uh, that's what I tried to do. I tried to make the guys more than just one of the guys in the crew. I wanted to make them feel like this is part of what I do. And when they see those big crowds, they feel that pleasure and they 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 feel the same uh, inspiration that I feel uh, felt as a booker. You know, I was like, wow, look at this house. And they were in the same frame of mind. So yeah. it's a, it's a great deal. So. Yeah, they take more pride, obviously, in what they're doing. And then when they show up, they are ready to go. Yeah, that's awesome. So next week, we're going to get to that crazy angle. And we will cover it in really great depth next week and talk about one of the most amazing angles that was probably ever worked in the sport. 
you're talking about the sledgehammer over the head part, right? Yes. <laughs> okay. That's going to be crazy. I can't wait to hear that. But all right. So you're making us wait for that. So what are we going to do next? Okay. So, yeah, it was simple. The, this angle, you know, it, it, they wanted to take turns, basically. And just to, just to get people a little bit set up for next week's uh, today's training, they wanted to take turns. One one doing it one week and the other doing it next week, a two-week deal. It was going to be based on a challenge. They're going to sit in the ring with a big concrete block placed on top of their head, and they're going to let the other one break it with a sledgehammer. So next week, we're going to do a, a wrestler-suggested angle, oh, and we're going to wear those wrestling hats. Or should I say, in this case, since both of them are bald-headed, we're not going to wear any hats, and we're going to do something absolutely crazy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so what's next, Ron? All right, we're going to go back to August the 20th, 1976. We're going to back up. Uh, we're going back in the Chihuahua Parks Amphitheater, and we're going to give everybody what that card is. Then we're going to back up six days earlier than that to Saturday, August the 14th, the television that's going to promote that Friday night, August the 20th card. Uh, then we're going to give the results of that card in the attendance. So on Friday, August 20th, 1976, the amphitheater was pretty well full again. It might not have had quite as many fans as it did the week before, but it was still a massive crowd. Uh, the opening match was a very rare appearance of Les Thatcher. And on the Saturday TV before this card, Louis Tillette was actually booked in the opening match against DeVoy Brunson on this card. But uh, when we start to talk about the TV here in a few minutes, we're going to find out how Les Thatcher got in on the card. And this is a pretty interesting little scenario. Something happened that you didn't expect. And, uh, heck, I just jumped on it and said, hey, let's, let's go with this. Let's see what happens. So the second match was a handicap match. Uh, the first match is supposed to have been Louis Tillette against DeVoy Brunson. But uh, that's going to change in the, when the television starts uh, spontaneously, which is really, really great when something like that happens. The second match was a handicap match. The week before, Mephisto had burned his second wrestler, Ron Wright. And he was now, pardon the expression, hot as hell in the territory. <laughs> so this night he faced two opponents, George McCrary and Rick Connors. Third match for the Southeastern Championship. It was a return match for the title. The new champion, the Gladiator, was defending against the former champ, Tor Tanaka, with Homer Odell managed, obviously, Tanaka. Fourth match was a return tag match for the Southeastern Tag Belts. This was his very unusual best three out of five falls for the belts. And I don't know that that's ever been done a lot, but I wanted to try to do some different things, give people a different type of match. When you change the number of falls, you change the style of the match automatically. And uh, I'd want, I wanted to see for myself what's a five-fall match look like. And the champions of On Tigers are going to be defending against Jimmy Golden and Mike Stallings. Two darn good young guys, really scratchers and diggers. Last match featured a return of my father, Buddy Fuller, who would manage me. And I would be facing Don Carson and a very unusual manager for Don Carson, Tora Tanaka. It didn't make sense for Homer, who had such a problem with Carson and the superstars months earlier, to allow his monster to be in Carson's corner. So, you know, that one we'll try to figure out in the course of this program. The key to this match was that I was going to be wearing Carson's black glove, and this time I'm going to be willing to use it on him. <laughs> so after we had the pole match, I came out of the ring with the black glove, and uh, I decided because Carson uh, pulled the stuff he did that uh, I'd just go ahead and wear that glove and beat the hell out of him with it for a while. <laughs> <laughs> So it's going to be my turn to use the glove. I got my dad in my corner, and Carson's got Tor Tanaka in his. Uh, you know, not a tag match, but uh, they're the managers, and uh, it, it sets up for a wild damn deal. And uh, I'd won the match, obviously, like I said the week before, carried the glove out, and uh, all that giant crowd that and that big coal miners pole match uh, were just so excited about it. So we're going to come and bring that back as the main event on August the 20th. All right. That's awesome. Ron, let's take a break right here. We will return with the great TV show of Saturday, August 14th, 1976. That is coming up when this stud cast continues in a moment with Ron Fuller right here. 
The stud has all kinds of friends from the past. This one started in the sport at about the same time Ron did, but he certainly had a much different path to success. Fans are going to learn a lot about this wrestler that they didn't know. And isn't that what Super Studcast are all about? His first contact with wrestling was drawing pictures of the wrestling TV stars in his own hometown. You're not going to want to miss this one at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. This truly is a deep dive into one of the most outrageous ways anyone ever became a wrestler. It is hard to imagine drawing the stars and then becoming one, but it happened to him. He has since become one of the most famous celebrities and recognizable figures in America. From hometown Memphis to the WWE and lots of stops in between, he has really become the king. We could only be talking about one man. The one and only Jerry the King Lawler. This will be another record breaker. At tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Only $2.99 for three hours of fascinating wrestling history. Saddle up for an eye-opening experience. We're back on the Studcast with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Every Studcast episode can be found at tnstud.com. That's tnstud.com. Everything you need if you're a fan of the Stud is right there, tnstud.com, including that very popular Stud t-shirt. It is right there as well. Okay, Ron, tell us about the TV show on Saturday, August 14th, 1976. Okay, so this TV on that Saturday, it's after that big, huge record crowd in the park. Uh, it's the next morning. This one has another dramatic opening with another fireball from the great Mephisto that completely surrounded Ron Wright's head. Uh, this fireball might have been even bigger than the one he threw on Bob Armstrong. Uh, so Mephisto and Louis Tillette are both at the set with Les for the opening of the show. And again, the fans at home and in the studio couldn't see the big photo that's on the chroma keyed side of the set because they, we open with a tight shot of Les. So Les covers the, the many things that's coming up in this TV show. And when he finishes and the camera back away to the long shot of the set behind the, the three of these guys, they got that still shot of that giant fireball that encompassed Ron Wright's entire head. I mean, wow. And the fans in the studio, just like they did every time, they gasped like, oh, wow, because they couldn't see it on that plain blue background. Uh, you could see it upstairs because of, because of the chroma key, uh, the effect, but yeah. they didn't see it downstairs. So when they actually saw this shot by seeing it on the screen, they were like, oh, my gosh, man, look at this. And, uh, and I figured the fans at home are going to be doing exactly the same thing. So, like I said, this fireball was even bigger than the Bob Armstrong one from two weeks earlier. Uh, when the video was backed up and set into motion, and uh, they began to talk about this match, Les asked the great Mephisto at the set with him how he could produce fire like that, which is an obvious question. How do you do that, man? So the Mephisto, with his deep Arabic accent, said something about experience, and you, you had to figure you experienced the, the fires of hell, or you know, he put his Arabic taste on it, and he made it very difficult to understand him. He was always difficult to understand. So Louis Tillet's desk with him, and so Tillet broke into the conversation, uh, and he he got he got on less. He said he asked less, you know, something about. Well, what's the problem with you, man? I mean, can't you hear? Can't you understand an intelligent man like Mephisto? And, uh, <laughs> you know, and he asks Les, you know, he says, are, are you stupid as you look? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy, it was a good start to the show. <laughs> so, so Les was obviously, I knew right away. I like, oh, Les ain't going to like that. <laughs> you know? So he got a bit upset at Louis' remark, you know. Uh, but, you know, he was the consummate professional, and he retained his usual composure, and he made another attempt to just talk to Mephisto again. And the video is running in the background, and you're seeing all this stuff go on while they're having this little, they're, they're about to have a problem here. So uh, Les asked Mephisto, this time he, he asked him, uh, well, why is it that it seems like you'd like to burn your opponents rather than beat them? <laughs> you know, good question. 
So Mephisto, again, man, with that big heavy accent, <laughs> Arabic accent, he, he said something about, you know, needing the fire to cleanse the dirty souls of the American infidels. <laughs> <laughs> and it was better to cleanse them and purify them than just beat them. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's a heavy remark there. <laughs> and and uh, then Louis interrupts again, and he, he asks Les, he says to Les, as, as best I can remember this, he says to Les, uh, do you need cleansing? <laughs> <laughs> he suggested to Les that maybe you ought to get in the ring with Mephisto, you know, and let him cleanse you, <laughs> you know? So both Mephisto and Tillette start laughing. <laughs> and I, oh, now, so then Tillette asks him, Les, he, he really goes overboard, and he says, uh, you know, maybe, he says, do you use soap when you bathe? <laughs> He says, you don't smell too clean, Les Thatcher. <laughs> so, oh, we're, we're, so I'm up in the control room, and, and I got a giggle at it, too, but I know Les, man. So, Les is starting to lose it a little bit to that after this. You know? So he asked Talit, why is he out there at the set? He goes, you weren't scheduled to be here on the set. You're scheduled to be in the ring for the first match, right? He's, he's trying to put him in his place. So Tillette says, uh, <laughs> I go where I want, Thatcher. <laughs> he goes, I knew you were too stupid to speak intelligently with a man of Mephisto's mind. <laughs> because right, yeah. his intellect is so far beyond yours that you need help out here when it comes to having a big mind and a good mind. <laughs> <laughs> so they have another laugh at Les's expense. Now Les's face goes blood red. <laughs> he says, he says to let something about, I think you better get in the ring now before you and I go at it. <laughs> and uh, so the studio audience, they reacted. Now they're picking it up that Les is, Les is a little upset here, you know? And so to let's opponents already in the ring and Les shouts to the ring announcer, and which he never does, who, the ring announcer and the co-host, Phil Rainey, who's set to introduce the match. He says, ring the bell. <laughs> you know, like... Like he's he's sending, he's basically sending to let to the ring. Yeah. So Mephisto walks back toward the dressing room. He leaves the set and to lingers there. And he says something to Les that you can pick up on Les's microphone. And he says something about, uh, too bad you don't have enough guts to wrestle anymore. Thatcher, he goes, I'd whip your ass right now. (laughs) (laughs) But I picked that up in the control room, I'm, and I go, oh, I cringe upstairs. I'm like, oh, my God, no, well, that's got to come out. we got to take that word out, you know, because I was afraid, you know, somebody else, if I heard it, so, everybody's going to hear it. So, Well, in, in 1976, the word ass uh, took on a, a, a worse connotation than it might today. Oh, yeah. You, you didn't say anything on, on television you know, right. that had any, any potential of being <laughs> – vile or vulgar or whatever you know so obviously i was like wow no what the hell are we gonna do but uh you know that was the beauty of tape the show was being taped so we had two hours before it aired so they went back and clipped that word out but les wasn't satisfied now he's he's hot (laughs) so he he gets up from his seat and he makes a move to go after Tillette, but Tillette's already gone to the ring. So Phil Rainey sees what's happening uh, over at the desk and he picks up on it and he quickly announced the match as Tillette was in the ring. They ring the bell and Phil went to the set with Les. And he wasn't supposed to, but he went and sat down and he's trying to calm Les down, you know. So Les asked Phil to handle a commentary for this match. He, he says, Phil, why don't you take this match? And there's that phone that's set on the desk there. And the phone was there so that we could contact Les or he could contact us if we needed to talk to about something that was he had forgotten or something happened that we weren't expecting. Anyway, he picked up that phone and that phone rang upstairs to me. <laughs> and he says uh, to me, he goes, Ron, he goes, I want him <laughs> Friday night. <laughs> So I go, okay, Les, I said, come on up here. I said, just come on up here and uh, we'll have enough time while, uh, while, <laughs> while he's cutting this commercial. I mean, his interview with Phil Rainey for you to be able to redo the, the Vitafon. So he leaves the set, you know, and Phil goes ahead and handles the commentary of the match. You know, and during the match, the early part of the match, 
Tillet kept screwing with Les. He would take the his opponent who was who was not very good, and he had him a couple of times pinned, and he pulled him up on purpose, and he would motion to Les to come on, come on to the ring, come get you some right. And uh, oh, it, it was getting out of hand. Uh, when the match is over, Tillet and Mephisto, they go back to the set. They're going to do the first interview of the show. And Les had left the set by that point. Phil Rainey's going to handle the interview. Uh, Mephisto was booked in a handicap match with George McCrary and Rick Connors, Mephisto against the two of them, and Tillette was scheduled to meet DeVoy Brunson, like I mentioned earlier in the first match. They both knew what the card was. They had seen the Vitafont run already when we were cutting interviews for other markets. So when the Vitafont opened in the interview segment, it displayed the card on the screen, as always, and Phil Rainey had already cut the earlier Vitafont when it was pre-recorded. But this time, the video font was redone, and Les's voice came over the font live. And the first match had been changed from Louis Tillette versus DeVoy Brunson to Louis Tillette versus Les Thatcher. <laughs> <laughs> so Louis sees it, and he starts screaming. As soon as he sees the change of the card, he's talking to Mephisto, and he goes, what did that say? Did that say Les Thatcher? And he goes, they've changed his card. So the Vitafont continued to roll. Well, Tillette never stopped complaining as he asked Mephisto, you know, if that card hadn't been changed. They were just discussing it, basically, while the font is running. So Tillette was infuriated that Les had asked officials to become his opponent for the following Friday night. That's They got an interview now, so he just goes right into it. Well, wait a minute, you know, I, I, all right, so Thatcher's going to be my opponent. Good deal, right? So... So after the fans figured out what's going on, they really got on to let, man. So did Rainey. He asked to let if that wasn't what he asked Les for just a few minutes earlier. You know, he said, basically, why are you complaining here about being booked with Les Thatcher? Wasn't you asking for him a few minutes ago? So now the opening match for the following Friday is going to be something special. And it definitely added to the card because of the way this thing all worked out. So Les had his own interview slot later in the show. And he got to talk about what he was going to do. Uh, during that interview, he let to let know that Friday night wasn't going to be any picnic for him. <laughs> but, you know, uh, he's still hot. <laughs> and I'm still having a good day. This is fun for me. I'm like, wow, I like it. I like to see a little stuff go on. So the masked gladiator joined Les at the set for the next segment. Les gets himself together and he goes on with the show. Gladiator's there with his newly won Southeastern belt. He received, obviously, a rousing welcome from the studio audience. They watched a video of his huge win the night before. A huge win over Tanaka, and nobody was beating Tanaka. Particular attention was paid in this video to what happened at the end of the match. When Homer O'Dell got involved in the match, went around to the timekeeper, picked up the southeastern belt, and the referee was down, and he had (laughs) Tanaka Full Nelson pulled uh, the gladiators, uh, Dick Steinborn, who it actually was, and he brought Steinborn over to him. And when uh, Homer went to crack him with the belt, he ducked and uh, Tanaka hit. I mean, Homer hit Tanaka. And uh, boy, he opened up a nasty cut on his forehead. Uh, it was So at that spot, the match with Tanaka had been counted out and the gladiator hand had been raised. Lest asked the director to pause the video. And he thanked the gladiator for joining him. And he sent him to the ring because he's in the next match live. Then we did something that we didn't, hadn't ever done before. Les invited both Tanaka and Homer out to the set to watch the final part of that video before the match in the ring was even announced. And uh, Homer burst out into the studio and went straight to the set, screaming at Les. Uh, he realized Les was going to make things a whole lot worse between him and Tanaka, he tried to probably spent the whole night trying to make Tanaka feel better about it. It was an accident. I, I, I'm so <laughs> sorry about what I did to you. And now there, Les is going to really highlight it. So Tanaka strolls out and he, he looks just as mad as he looked 12 hours earlier, right after the match when he's standing in the ring bleeding and his belt's all gone. Uh, he had a row of stitches in his forehead <laughs> from the night before. And then the injury came from his own manager. So Homer was absolutely furious with Thatcher, and that's what he called Les, especially when he didn't like him. You know, he, you know, because Les set him up. He accused Les of setting him up. You're causing problems with me and Tanaka. You know you are, you know. 
and Les rolled the tape anyway. So fans that weren't there, they saw what happened after the Southeastern belt was presented to the new champion, the Gladiator. And the new champion quickly left the ring after it was over, and Tanaka was enraged at Homer for his mistake. The madder Tanaka got, the louder that crowd got. That huge crowd anyway that night, the record crowd, was loud anyway. But boy, in the next couple of minutes after Homer did that to Tanaka, it was horrible. I mean, uh, Homer was begging. He was literally on his knees begging Tanaka, don't do it to me. (laughs) And Tanaka's face is all red. He's watching the video and his face is getting red in the studio again. Homer begins to plead again right on the set. Oh, come on. Come on now, Tanaka. (laughs) We've already been through this. And Tanaka got mad again. So the studio crowd, man, they got into that too. They went crazy again. And I knew the fans at home were going crazy too. You could feel the heat between the two of those guys. And the fans just wanted to see it happen. They wanted Tanaka to do something to Homer. So Homer delicately maneuvered around Tanaka because he was on the wrong side of him. And he was going to be the hasty retreat for the dressing room. And he stormed off the set. And uh, Tanaka was right behind him. And Tanaka, as usual, he screamed something. But it's indescribable. You couldn't understand anything Tanaka said. And he just left breathing down Homer's back. (laughs) That was a nice segment, too. This show's off to a good start, man. For me, I'm like, wow, this is going to be a good show. Bill finally rang for the new Southeastern champion, the Gladiator, and he got his first win as a champion. We had a special personality profile that day. My father joined Les and I, and we watched the Terry Funk interview, another personality profile interview he had sent on video the day before regarding the upcoming NWA world title match with me. He had a list of all the best heels in the Southeastern Territory, And he made a plea to each one of them, named them specifically. And he said, I want one of y'all to do me a big favor. He asked that just one of them, any of them, he didn't care which one it was. They needed to beat me in the next 50 days before October 10th. So as a strange request, you know, for a world champion. So Les asked us, me and my dad, about how we felt about this. So I said I felt pretty good about it, obviously. I mean, the pressure to win every night was going to make me sharp. It was going to help me to do what I needed to do when it came time to get the biggest win of my life in 50 days. And I knew the road wasn't going to be get any easier. It's just going to get harder between now and October 10th. <laughs> that was for sure. So my father, who hadn't been to Knoxville for six months since February 22nd of 76, when he and Rob and I, we're in a six-man tag in the Knoxville Coliseum. He was asked by Les what he felt about how I was getting all this attention from the world champion. Uh, Dad said it was the best sign any wrestler could get. He said, obviously, Funk thought I really had a chance to win the title. Yeah, and yeah, if yeah. the champion feared his opponent so much that he would go to all this trouble to stop him before he even gets a title match, he's running scared. <laughs> yeah. And Ryan, you know, stop you right there because Terry... Back in those days, and as I recall, and I think I've heard you mention this before, he would send you, he would send tapes in to play back on the show where he would be on his ranch in Texas and he might be swinging a rope or something or banging a cowbell against, but it was some sort of scenic like you would not typically see on a wrestling show, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He always sent these crazy interviews. But this one wasn't that way. He had sent one the week before. It wasn't that way. And the reason was he's world champion now. And he's not at home. He's not on his ranch. Okay. So he's he's out somewhere in the country of the world. And he right. just goes into a studio in that territory. And he cuts an interview that he sends to Knoxville. Yeah. To me. Yeah. You know, about me. Right. So, you know, this one did not have anything. It wasn't on the ranch. He's going to send some on the ranch ones before it's right. over. But this one, again, doesn't come from the ranch. So he makes his little deal, and he talks to the heels. And I don't know how he got all the the heels' names in the territory, but he went to some trouble to cut this interview. And then he asked them all to do him a big favor. So Dad, you know, he he says, you know, that he's got he's running scared, you know, that uh, you know, obviously he's he he thinks that Ron's going to have an opportunity to beat him. So Les then brought up the main event from six days later. 
we're in this main event, Dead's Man and Me and Don Carson managed by that that monster himself, Tora Tanaka. So Les pointed out that there seemed to be a very suspect alliance going on between Homer, Tanaka, and Carson. Because, you know, he remembered back a few months ago when the superstars were there that uh, they hated each other, especially Homer and Carson. So Dad pointed out that obviously Funk's pressure had begun to already have an effect on wrestlers in the southeastern area, that things may be just beginning to get ugly, that the two world champion brothers from Texas were worried that the two brothers from Tennessee might become their biggest foes in the future. He said that after he heard the combination of Carson and Tanaka set up against me for the following Friday night and knew Robert wasn't going to be able to be there to help me, since he had lost that loser-leave-the-territory match to Carson, that he had to be in my corner. So, you know, he showed up the Saturday before. He's going to come back the following Friday. So not only the match for the following Friday was set up for the future, but every match I had from that point on was going to be extremely important because Funk had the NWA back his play to say if Fuller loses any matches before the world title, he loses the shot at the championship. So it's a very serious and forward-looking personality profile, for sure. Now, obviously, the, the deck was very much stacked against you, Ron, but fans were going to be more interested in Southeastern than ever over the next couple of months because of everything that was about to happen. Yeah, yeah, that's the that's the whole the whole object here, and uh, uh, we're drawing big crowds. We're wrestling against each other, but there's one match that's coming that is taking precedent over everything else, but it's just helping to build things. And uh, that's why the Coliseum was so necessary. I kind of saw this on the night of the big crowd that uh, what we're doing here is going to really explode business and we need to be in the bigger facility. We need to be in the biggest place we can, we can wrestle in. No doubt. And to me, that was part of the genius of Terry Funk was sending these intimidating videos ahead of the match, even one month or two months out. Yeah, he liked to do that. And he was a great talker. He was really good at it. And it was really important for my territory because very few people knew anything about Terry Funk in Knoxville in eastern Tennessee. And uh, I needed that to happen. I wanted them to be able to see him. And I wanted them to know what kind of character he was rather than just wait on the world champion and get their first look. So they're getting a look at him every week, and they're going to get that every week until he arrives. That's awesome. All right. So what else happened on the show on that day? So the Bond Steigers uh, Southeastern Tag Championship against Jimmy Golden and Mike Stallings is the next Friday night. And uh, there was a lot of talk about it because of this three out of five fall for a championship. And uh, each of the two teams got wins. The next two matches on on that television was the Von Steigers in one match and Jimmy Golden and Mike Stallings in the next. They both got wins right there on the TV, and the stage obviously was set for a big Southeastern night. Uh, Don Carson, uh, one mention here, Don Carson had an interview on that show with Tor Tanaka standing behind him. And uh, he, boy, he says Ron Fuller will not, wear my glove but one more match (laughs) and uh, my peanut butter's coming home friday night you know he just basically laid it all on the line and said you know basically this is it for me i've either got to get that glove or i gotta get out of here because i'm gonna be eating it every match so it was a tremendous show all right rod it looks like based on time that we gotta get the results of this week's card and the attendance and hold that for next week Because in the meantime, it is time to get that cold drink and take a seat under the learning tree once again. And this one could be a long one, I understand. Well, yeah, this one is a it's a it's a great question. And, you know, and it's going it's going to take me a few minutes to 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 go through this. So uh, the learning tree question, let's go back over it for fans that may have forgotten since the beginning of the show. But the learning tree question for today is from someone named Terry Mason Barfield. He asks, uh, what were the dangers involved in traveling in the territory days? Were car accidents a wrestler's greatest danger? And name some loss to the sport. Uh, A great question, uh, but a tragic one. 
So I don't know any wrestler in the sport at that time frame or any other time frame that didn't know some other wrestler that was killed in a car accident. It was that bad a deal. And it was obviously uh, extremely dangerous to run the highways back in the 70s and 80s. So let's answer the first two questions first. What were the dangers traveling in the territory days? And were car accidents a wrestler's greatest danger? Obviously, there was not any type of danger more prevalent for a wrestler than a car accident. It happened so often, it was, it was horrible. So there's a very good reason for this, obviously. Wrestlers drove significant numbers of miles every night to and from matches. Uh, Back in those days, you didn't fly very often, and only if you were a big star and you needed to fly out and wrestle in one city and come back to the same territory that you've been in all the time. Each territory, depending on its size and what part of the country it was in, had a different number of miles to drive each week. Southeastern, for instance, was on the low end of the scale. We were in a small territory. We only drove about 600 to 800 total miles a week. Some people go, wow, that's a lot of miles, but boy, wrestling-wise, it isn't. Just as a comparison, the Florida Territory, you drive about 2,500 miles a week. Mid-Atlantic Territory in the Carolinas was 3,000 miles a week. Uh, (laughs) Mid-South, Bill Watts' territory that ran you from uh, southern Louisiana into Oklahoma, you do well over 3,000 miles a week. And, you know, some of the territories out west, the cities are far apart. It was it was ridiculous how much time you spend in the car. So obviously, the more you're in a car, the more likely you are to get involved in a wreck. That's just plain numbers. I'm not going to go deeply into injuries from car wrecks. You know, I think you want to know people that have died in car wrecks. But I am going to talk real quickly here about two wrecks that involve my family members in the sport. My grandfather, Roy Butch's brother, Herb had a nasty wreck that injured his leg so badly he had to give up the World Junior Heavyweight Championship, a title that he had held for more than five years consecutively. Almost a record. Maybe a record. I've never never checked to see if it is. Uh, He finally regained his health, and uh, he recovered his title, but he probably wasn't ever as good after he came back after this horrible wreck uh, as he was before he got hurt. Now, those two brothers... Roy and Herb, they had a sister who married a gentleman named Virgil Hatfield. Uh, Virgil and and Bond was her name. They had three sons, and they changed their name to Fields when they became wrestlers. They were Lee Fields, Bobby Fields, and Don Fields. Don's career was ended in a head-on collision late at night on his way home from a wrestling match. And uh, the worst part of this old this accident, I think, is his two brothers weren't far behind him in another car, and they were the first to arrive at the scene. So I guess that would be probably the worst-case scenario for a car wreck, to be the first there, and it's a family member that's in it. He was injured so badly, he never wrestled again. He had a hard time walking. He could certainly never wrestle again. So let's answer the other question that uh, Mr. Barfield asked is, uh, Name some of the loss to the sport by car accidents. Now, obviously, there were many wrestlers that died on the road. And I'm only going to focus on mostly those wrestlers that lost their life that I knew or that I had some type of connection with. I'm going to begin with the wrestler that I never met, but he had never-ending effect on Knoxville and the Eastern Tennessee wrestling fans before I got there with Southeastern Wrestling. There was a guy there named Whitey Caldwell. He was a tremendous athlete. And from what I heard about him from almost everybody I ever talked to, he was a great man. Uh, he was loved and admired by fans across the southeastern part of the country. He died on Saturday, October 7, 1972, on his way home to Kingsport, Tennessee. He had wrestled in the afternoon on television in Knoxville and worked in Marstown, Tennessee, the same place that every other Saturday night we still worked when Southeastern was there, and uh, he died on his way home. The next casualty of the highway was a wrestler I worked with many times, too, uh, uh, as a young man. That This guy I worked with several times as a young man in the Florida Territory. I wrestled him in a six-man tag, the first match I ever had in the state of Florida. His name was Tarzan Tyler, 
And he was a big, huge guy out of Canada. He had been a star in the WWF, had many matches against Bruno Sammartino. He died on Christmas Eve, 1985, coming home from a match. Oh, my. Christmas Eve. Mm. Can you imagine that? The next one is Randy Savage, who wrestled in Knoxville in 1979 for the All-Star Wrestling Company. That was the company that ran matches against Southeastern in the Knoxville War. I'd never met Randy at the time, but I did in 1996 when I was living in the Florida Keys. And I went to Miami to visit with Arn Anderson and Ric Flair because they were doing TV there. Uh, He came to me in the dressing room. He was extremely polite. He apologized for wrestling against my Southeastern company. And he said how much he would have loved to have worked for me. Oddly enough, he died on May the 20th, 2011, just minutes from where I live in Seminole, Florida, at the time he died. He had a heart attack, and then he hit a tree when he lost control after having a heart attack. That tree is still there, and I see it when I go to my local bank. I see that same tree. I look at it every time. I cannot help myself. And I think about one of the greatest ever, Macho Man, Randy Savage. And a lot of fans have left flowers on occasion, but it's still a memorial today, that tree. Yes, and it's still there. And like I say, it's across the street from the bank where I do business. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Uh, So the next four guys I'm going to talk about were some of the biggest names in wrestling. And all four of them worked for me at one time or another. The first one worked for me in southeastern Knoxville from late 1977 into 1979. He was a monster of a man. He weighed almost 500 pounds, 474 pounds. His name was Jerry Blackwell. He was called Man Mountain Blackwell. He was out of Stone Mountain, Georgia, which is a suburb of Atlanta. He actually tried (laughs) to... To throw a bear over the top rope in a battle royal when I asked him to one time in Har- Harlan, Kentucky. I said, I said, Blackwell, can you throw that bear over the top rope? <laughs> there was a bear in that battle royal. <laughs> and, and he actually tried it. It was it's amazing. The guy was amazing. And, and as a show of strength, he used to drive nails through two-by-four planks with his forehead on TV. I mean, he, he was he was something else. He died on January 22nd, 1995, from a car accident that happened in December of 1984. Took him about a month after he got in the accident before he actually died. The next wrestler, his name Sylvester Ritter, came to southeastern Knoxville in 1977. He was a very good-looking prospect. I could tell he was going to be a star someday, somewhere, no doubt. I already had Norville Austin in Southeastern still at that time, and he was wrestling as the junkyard dog. So I talked to Sylvester, and I told him that I wanted to send him to the great territory. that was run by a tremendous promoter, Bill Watts, and Sylvester had a tremendous attitude, and he thanked me. He went to Mid-South. He became a monster star in Mid-South as there, the Mid-South's junkyard dog. He died on June 2nd, 1998, when he fell asleep at the wheel coming home from his daughter's graduation ceremony. Next wrestler was said to be a potential NWA world champion. Uh, He wrestled for my Continental Company. He wrestled for my USA Wrestling Company. He was a real talent and great guy to work with. Good guy. Very well liked. His name was Buddy Landell. He died on June 21st, 2015, when he had a very bad car accident and was sent home from the hospital the same night. His wife found him dead in bed the following morning. Now, that one to me is just, I can't can't imagine how you can have a wreck so bad that it's going to kill you and they send you home. Now, the last one is a. I had an extremely personal relationship with this guy. Uh, and this guy was another guy like Landell. He was liked by just about everybody. He was both a wrestler and a manager and very good at both of them. His name was Sam Bass. He worked for me in my first year at Southeastern Knoxville. He managed many people, but most notably, he managed Ron and Don Bass and Jerry Lawler. 
And Jerry Lawler is going to be the guest on this month's Super Studcast, oddly enough. So before I finish this learning tree, I want to thank you, Mr. Barfield, for your questions. It's good to remember those that are no longer with us, and, uh, and I believe that is the case. But this last part's more difficult for me. Uh, Sam Bass and I had a very close relationship, as I said, in 1975, when I was working on Monday nights, every Monday night in Memphis in 1975. Sam was on all of those cards. And there was many times when I'd be working the following night in Louisville, Kentucky, and Sam would let me ride with him to Nashville, from Memphis to Nashville, and always insisted I had to spend the night with him and his wife. She was so nice. You know, he would not let me stay in the hotel. No, Ron, you're going to stay in my house. And I tell this particular story because of how Sam died on Monday night, July 27, 1976. And I was working that same night, and I was scheduled in Louisville to wrestle the following night. And I asked Sam, like I had done so many other times, if I could ride back to Nashville with him and spend the night. And at the last minute that night, for whatever reason, I decided to stay over in Memphis and to fly to Louisville instead of riding with Sam. That night, Sam Bass, Frank Hester, and Pepe Lopez died in a horrible, fiery crash oh, on their wow. way from Memphis to Nashville. Mm. So you can imagine how I felt the next morning when someone called me and found out where I was, and they said Sam Bass died last night, and they told me how. And to this very day, when I'm asked about my close call, all I say is, there but for the grace of God go I. No doubt about it. What a solemn ending to another great show, Ron. Every one of these studcasts just seems to be getting better and better. On Facebook, Ron has three Facebook pages now. One has been filled with its limit of 5,000 fans, as you can well imagine. You can still become his friend on the Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud page, by simply liking the page. Ron has another Facebook page, author Ron Fuller Welch. Simply like that page to become friends there too. Super Studcast number 32, part one, is now available with the legendary Jerry the King Lawler at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Ron, that's going to be a really interesting show, and I bet you got something to say about that one as well. Oh, it's a fantastic, one of the best. I really, really enjoyed this one. It was great. Jerry Lawler has always been a character in the sport and has wrestled some of the all-time greats. He started as a guy that was drawing portraits of wrestlers and becomes a star in the sport in which he sat in the studio as a kid and drew pictures of him. He wrestled everybody, all these stars, uh, and uh, you know, and 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 guys that weren't stars that were just crazy what they did. And uh, one of those was Andy Kaufman. He had the mm -hmm. Andy Kaufman thing. Uh, uh, he just had a phenomenal career. And this is really going to be a great super stud cast. We finished part one, uh, and I uh, really look forward to doing part two of it. And yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. It's nice to have the opportunity to, to say a few things about this. I know that it was announced in the break today, but uh, I want to plug it again and say something about it myself. And thank you very much, Jerry, uh, for doing it with me because uh, your, your history in the sport is just phenomenal. And that was the slap that was heard around the world on the David Letterman show when he was there with Andy Kaufman and, and people thought, well, okay, now this is, that was not playing because he really, he knocked the crap out of him and knocked him over backwards on network television. All right, Ron, that's going to be big time. So where are we headed next week? So we're going to begin to, by telling the story of that angle that we, we finished with, uh, in today's training up there, uh, we're going to talk about that angle specifically and, and how that worked. And, uh, we're going to uh, obviously put on the, the wrestler hats for that one, <laughs> you know, uh, because uh, that is, is it's, it's a phenomenal event in the sport. And we're going to reveal the results of this show, uh, the one that we didn't finish today, and the attendance for the August the 20th, 76 show. And then we're also going to talk about the following week's card of August 27th, 1976. And we're going to have Terry Funk on again. And this time he's going to put 
bounty on my head. So uh, this, we're going to discuss TVs, uh, both of these TVs, maybe two television shows. We can get them both in there and end with another very interesting learning tree. I want to thank everybody, Dave, as always, especially uh, those that's been riding with me each week for years now. And uh, take care of yourselves, everybody, and take care of others as well. And may God bless us all. And God bless you too, Ryan. Thank you very much. This is David Summers thanking you for joining us and reminding you that Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.